Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. And uh, welcome back, everyone, to the second of our best bits from our ever-expanding vaults. And waistlines. Yeah, well, of course, especially, you know, I mean, with, with the fish and chips you keep forcing me to have on the seafront. <laughs> I didn't make you have the pickled egg. Well, I'm not having the welk anymore because that did played havoc. <laughs> it played uh, havoc, didn't it? Havoc. <laughs> and today we're going to concentrate on a selection of legends from the 60s. It's, in fact, this episode is called Legends of the 60s. And we've had a few on, haven't we? So coming up, we will be hearing from Colin Blunstone, Marianne Faithful, Jerry Shirley from Humble Pie, legendary producer Shel Tarmy, and something from the very first episode of Rock on Tours. Yeah. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! So first up, we've got Hank Marvin. Everybody, Guy, says that he's he's the guitarist's guitarist. He's their big influence, isn't it? I mean, so many of the people who have interviewed. When you first discovered rock and roll, though, weren't you surprised when you found that out? Because you know, there were all the people you loved, like Mick Ronson and Pete, and yeah. and they all go, yeah, yeah, this guy. And you look at this guy in the suit and glasses, and you go, really? Yeah, because we're the next generation. Exactly, along, aren't yeah. We? But you know, you remember Hank owned the first 
Stratocaster ever to come into the UK. Brought for him by Cliff by Richard. Cliff. Yeah. You know, and everyone forgets about Cliff as well because, you know, we all see Cliff as being sort of light entertainment, but Cliff was the... F- you know, him and Tommy Steele were the first British rock and rollers. That's right, absolutely. I mean, and the importance goes to things like Ed Bicknell, Dire Straits manager. He was told to go and see this band. He walked in and Mark Knopfler was playing a red strat like Hank. And that's what made him decide to manage them. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about people who were influenced by him. You know, Brian May, Tony Omi. I mean, John Lennon would have said it. George Harrison said it. I mean, Jeff Beck, Richie Blackmore, Mark. I mean, it, it goes on and on. I mean, the other thing is, is when The Shadows started, it was a club in Soho called The Two Eyes. That my dad painted the basement of with that's Lionel am- Bart. That's amazing. I think I'd forgotten that. <laughs> that is amazing. And... Did they play in the basement or did they play upstairs? Yeah, no, they played in the basement where everyone was sitting around with their coffees. And the bouncer at the Two Eyes was who? Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin's manager. Yeah, famously aggressive, but uh, yeah, legendary. I bet, he made a, I bet he was a very efficient <laughs> bouncer. <laughs> he, was. he was. So anyway, we, we have a clip here and I think it's actually talking about to Hank about how he influenced so many great guitarists. Every guitarist that's happened since the 60s and 70s, after you, everybody refers to you. And I mean everybody, yeah. the greats. I um, I, uh, I uh, had a quick chat with Pete Townsend this week who said, just say to Hank, I love him, but he knows that. <laughs> Not to get competitive or anything, but I had a word with David Gilmore. <laughs> who said to send? <laughs> who said to send you his very best? And I did actually say, "Do would you have a question?" Um, he firstly he said, "What an incredible influence you are on him." He said he once asked you what delay unit you used, and you couldn't remember. Um, if that if that's a question he wants answered, and it depends on which period he's talking about. The the original, yeah, the original Echo Box was um, marketed in the UK by Vox. But it was actually a Miati Echo Box, which I understand, again, Miati was simply the marketing retailer's name. It wasn't the name of the manufacturer. Um, I'll tell you who introduced me to that box. Do you remember a really old guy called Joe Brown? Yes. Of course, of yes, course. And Sam, course. his daughter, was on tour I, I, Yeah, and me. You guy. And she toured with Pink Floyd. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Joe, I mean, he's a lovely guy, Joe, and we, we used to have a laugh together when we used to meet up from time to time uh, back in 1959 we were appearing you know this was towards the very end of the the um, variety days so you still had a few variety theaters in operation one of which was in Manchester uh, in Liverpool Liverpool Empire and we we were doing a week there Cliff and the Drifters I think we we're still called then just before we changed our name and uh, Jack Good, who then was a TV producer yeah. and director who did Oh Boy Show and Boy Meets Girl, he was doing Boy Meets Girl from Manchester. And he called Cliff up and said, look, we've got Gene Vincent on the show. Do you want to come over and meet him? So we all shot over there. And while we were sort of surrounding Gene Vincent in admiration, uh, Joe Brown pulled me to one side and he said, I want to show you something. And he showed me this. It was only about so big. So deep, a box with a few dials on the front, a couple of knobs. And he gave me his guitar and said, try this. And the first echo that it had on there was the typical rock and roll tape echo, which sounded amazing. You know, that's the, the echo back. you get on stage, you know, to sound like a, the old rock and roll record. So I was knocked out with that. Then I, I discovered very quickly that it had 
multi-heads. So by depending which group of heads you chose and uh, which uh, speed, etc., you could get these tripping, tumbling echoes. Right, which right, are, right. Oh, like the Benson, like the Benson echo. That, yeah. Yeah, well, that's right. The Benson was uh, a later um, addition yeah. to the market. And I, f- I went on to Benson's for a while because the, <laughs> the problem with this uh, Vox was that it had a little a flat drum around which you put a quarter-inch tape. Okay, so it's just, it's actually yeah. recording on the tape. But of course, you had to splice the tape. And if the tape wasn't quite correctly spliced, you got us like, plus, it was very noisy, incredibly noisy, you know, which you didn't hear when we were playing. But obviously, a gap in the music when you're talking, you heard this sort of noise going on. One thing is going back as it's been a fantastic rabbit hole being down for the last week of, of going through all your stuff is um, the sound of those records, right? Sonically, just in terms of recording and stuff is so good. It's like they could have been recorded yesterday. When you compare what records went on to sound like in the 60s, just technically they were, they're amazing. They're so beautifully clean and you know, the fidelity is fantastic. What do you put that down to? It's probably drugs. <laughs> <laughs> no we didn't touch that stuff i tell you what though we had a great recording engineer malcolm addy yeah. he was really good is that abbey road yes uh malcolm used to work a lot with uh, nori paramo who's the record nori paramo right who, yeah and and malcolm was the engine then we then peter when when malcolm le- left and went to go to the, he had an offer in the states so he went over to the usa uh peter vince took over about 1964 or five maybe but Malcolm said something to me one day, which I thought was interesting. He said, I had a call from um, a, a producer. He's recording an instrumental, and he wants to know how we get what he thinks is a big sound on your records. And he's using a lot of instruments, you know, like drums and percussion and keyboards and two or three guitars and so forth and so forth. And Malcolm said one of the secrets is, quite honestly, he said it's just it's the small group. It's... You can hear everything, and it sounds bigger because you're hearing each instrument come through. We never played too loud in the studio. Some some of the early records, couple of records, we we sort of got into a slight bit of distortion. We did a thing called Shotgun, which was a little, little distorted, and and Man of Mystery is is definitely yeah. boring on that. But generally, because I often wondered about that. Yeah, sorry, because no, I often wondered about that, even with your early lap, with your little Selma. Did you not notice when you cranked it right up that it would distort? Did you not think, hang on? <laughs> it's quite a good sound. Let me let me yeah, come up exactly. with a riff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. well, <laughs> the problem was on those things, but if you did anything like that, and it was, yes, there might be a hint of distortion, but if it got into serious distortion, yeah. it would just say, well, what's wrong with the amp? You know, it, it, people didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but this, I think the sound, I think the, what Guy's talking about and the clarity and the beauty of it really is your guitar. Because if you try and listen to the backing track on those instrumentals, Apache or FBI, you know, they're quite, they're quite condensed in a way, quite simple, but out front is this wonderful guitar sound. Now you were playing on the famous Fender Strat and we have to discuss this because this yeah, yeah. in history is so important. I mean, we all know David Gilmore plays a, a Fender Strat. He, he just sold it for how much no, did he sell all, it for? That was 3.6 million. But all the Pink Floyd tours I did, he was playing a red Strat. But but the Stratocaster the is so important in the history of rock and roll. And, uh, it, you know, obviously your inspiration to play this script 
uh, Stratocaster um, to play one was was Buddy Holly. Um, tell tell me two things. Tell me about Buddy Holly and why he's so important in rock and roll. And t- and to you. And tell me wh- how did you end up with the first Stratocaster ever to come into Britain? Yeah. Okay. Well, with Buddy, uh, the first record I heard that uh, I didn't even know who it was at the time was "That'll Be the Day" on a jukebox in in Newcastle, and it just sounded incredible. You have this mono sound, a lot of bottom end on it, and and the guitar sounded so. That introduction was so fabulous, and and Buddy had a, a, an unusual way of singing, didn't he? That little hiccuping style he had, yeah. uh, and that made a big impact. And and then almost immediately, I wanted to hear what else he was doing. I loved the sound of his voice. I loved the guitar. Then I found out he wore glasses, and I thought, I hope he has acne, because then we're, you know, <laughs> then we're we're pals. But anyway, yeah. I just thought he was uh, sensational. You know, um, he, he came up with some good rock and roll songs. He, he had a good guitar sound. He had a distinctive voice. And I think he gave hope to guys like me who were skinny and wore glasses that you didn't have to look like Elvis yeah. Presley. or. But there's also, uh, okay, I want to get guitar nerdy here because there's a thing about the colour, isn't it? Because you it's supposedly Fiesta Red, but it wasn't known as Fiesta. It's the colour was known as Salmon Pink over here. or <laughs> So what actually was it? Well, for some reason, Bruce, Cliff, and myself, when we poured over the vendor catalogue, because just to uh, a bit of explanation about that, you couldn't buy new American instruments in the UK in 1959. There was still an embargo on. They didn't get lifted, I think, till what, the end of 1960 yes. or something? Wow, I never knew that. Yeah, what was that? I always wondered about that, which is why everyone played tended to play German guitars, right? So everyone had Hofners, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah but what was, the embar- what was that embargo exactly? Uh, you, you'd have to do some research. And once you find out, if you let... This is my research. Know. I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> it was some, yes, it was some stupid embargo. But anyway, what, what happened, therefore, we had to send to direct to the Fender factory and buy it direct. So we got the brochure and we looked through it and the most expensive guitar was the Stratocaster and we'd already seen a photograph of Buddy Holly so we knew that, we didn't know what it was called but that was the shape of the guitar he had. And we saw they had it in red with all plated hardware, bird's eye maple neck and, and a whammy, well, they call it a vibrato bar, so, um, no, tremolo on it's a vibrato bar really. Yeah. So that's what we ordered. And the color, we're all convinced, was down as flamingo pink. Oh. But we have constantly heard from Fender there was never any such color. And I heard from some guy who was doing a book recently, he sent me a lot of information, and he's traced it back. And it, it was some kind of red uh, that the color we, we think was pink was never apparently in their, in their toolbox at the time. So it was some, I'll have to look it up. And if, if I mean, I so, so when this arrives, this box with, with this guitar in it, I mean, what an extraordinary thing to appear in the UK. To, yeah. uh, did, did people just gather? Did people come from miles around to stare at it? Oh, they would have done if we let it out of our sight. The thing was, you can imagine opening the, 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 the cardboard box and then you've got this tweed flat. Oh, yeah, so was it tweed? Guitar. Oh, you know, it's that tweed finish that we yeah. never see. And the flat case, we'd only ever seen guitar-shaped cases. Open it up, red plush, sort of velvet lining. And this guitar looked like it just came in from Mars or somewhere. Yeah. It was it was a fantastic sight. You know, they're so commonplace now, we don't perhaps can't fully appreciate the impact that had in the flesh. Absolutely. 
But, but I, they still what, look like the future. They still look like the future, the Stratocaster. They're, you know, it's yeah. an absolutely timeless. And a very versatile instrument too. I'll tell you one thing though, I couldn't believe. Uh, the guitar prior to that was a little cheap Antoria with a neck that was actually curved. So the action got, as you got to about the fifth fret, it was getting higher and higher, then got lower and lower. But it did have a shorter scale than a, than a I probably had a Gibson scale, and you could actually bend the strings a little bit, the second string. In fact, in a couple of Cliff's early records, you, I, you can hear me bending quite easily. But with the Stratocaster, they were really heavy. And I, I found out later they came in with 13s to 56, like a 24-wound third. Wow. Well, that's, that's where, you see, the whammy bar came in so useful. Because I've, I found that I could only bend the second string up like half step. But if I pulled the whammy bar, if I set it up correctly, I could pull up another half you know, give it a big pull up right. and yeah. not so much with the first string and a little bit with the third, but with that heavy third, you couldn't do much with it. And then, of course, you could dip the strings and you could get a lovely vibrato, make the guitar small, which was great. And you found your voice. This was your voice now, Hank. Yeah, indeed it was. Indeed it was. Now, The Zombies, that was a band that featured two great songwriters, Rod Argent and Chris White, and the fabulous vocals of one Colin Bluntstone. Yeah, I mean, we wanted Colin on, didn't we? Because, I mean, I, there's some great vocals from Colin. I mean, I love that that sort of high-end, syrupy voice of his, you know. He was the, one of the first of the sort of choir boy singers, wasn't it, if you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I put David in that category. They were a band from St Albans, and obviously, you know, actually one of their songs gets played a lot by young kids nowadays. Um, she's not there. Now, Gary... Because you're a couple of years older than me, I'm wondering if, because if I tell the truth, the first time I heard She's Not There, it was the Santana version, which was a hit single in the mid-70s. Oh, wow. Well, I'd forgotten that. Yes, I think you're probably right. I'm hoping you're right. You are right, obviously. I better be right or we're finished. Well, well, she's not, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, yeah, there was a Santana cover, yeah, in 1977 it came out on Moonflower album. And um, you're very quick on your Wikipedia. Today. I am, must be and of course, it was written by <laughs> it was written by Rod Argent. I actually would love to get Rod on the show. I agree. Can we say another little fact about the zombies is how they actually managed to practically colonise Denmark Street. They all became very successful. You, you had Rod Argent's keyboards and Bob Henrik's drum shop. Wow! Well, they were really entrepreneurial, weren't they? Yes. You know, if if the records aren't selling, then let's let's sell instruments. That that is amazing. But I mean, I was listening to Argent the other day. Hold your head up. He's oh, such a oh great, God. great Russ God Ballard, gave rock and roll to you, Russ Ballard. Right, was a lead yeah. singer who's still around, and uh, well, Rod's still around as well. I mean, both of them are people we'd love to get on this show, obviously. So if they're listening. But we were very happy to get Colin Blundstone on. He was a beautiful man. I remember he's, he's a really soulful guy and uh, it was a really nice episode. This was one of those ones which is a, a really nice result where when we started the interview, Colin clearly had no idea what he was doing or who he was talking to and then really, really warmed to it and really liked talking to us, which is a good feeling. This clip is a, about Rod Argent being a great songwriter and their first trip to New York and um, let's hear it. The catalogue of songs that you have, you know, with your writing and, and the fact you had a band with two incredible writers yes. in it. It's been, it's the, I was saying the last few days being on a deep dive has just been delightful. I mean, just fantastic. Such beautiful records you've made. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I think they were two really 
for their age. I think they were quite sophisticated writers, actually, but and, and particularly Rod, I think. He just could always write songs. And I, I must admit, I didn't know until we, well, the band had been going for about three years and um, we had a producer called Ken Jones. We won a rock and roll yeah. competition back in, well, it was in Watford actually, next door to St. Albans, which led to a recording contract with Decca. And uh, we were introduced to a producer called Ken Jones. And he was sort of saying, you know, we've got our first session in a couple of weeks time you could write something for that session if you wanted. Bands didn't do that in those days so much. Mm -hmm. You went to a songwriter. The Beatles changed all that, really. And um, I didn't think much on it. He went on to another subject then, but it clicked with Rod and he went away and he wrote She's Not There, okay, brought it back about 48 hours later. And, you know, it was a million seller and went to number one in America. And an actual fact, he later told me that was the third song he'd ever written. He'd written a couple of songs but he'd kept it a bit quiet. I didn't know anything oh, about how, it. How old was he? Um, when he wrote that, he was 18. Oh, my God. He wasn't like a trained pianist, right? Well, was he? He, funnily, wasn't, no, he wasn't, actually. I think he took about two years piano lessons when he was very young. Um, yeah, I only say that because there was so much... I mean, years before everyone else, the stuff was musically so sophisticated, straight out of the box. Everyone else was only doing three, four chords tops at the time. Mm. And you've already got, like, sneaks of this Baroque stuff. And, he, he just was you know. born with that. But also, he was in the Cathedral Choir in St Albans for many years. Oh, there it is. So there it is. he really <laughs> understood harmony. And he's since taught himself to read music. And he, he made a wonderful classical album. If ever you get the chance to hear it, it's called Classically Speaking. He's playing major piano works, just mm -hmm. fantastic. But when Rod, when when he speaks, he uh, implies or he says that that he he would write out the bass parts or he would he would write the bass parts. Does he mean actually write them out, or did he just sort of play them on the piano and show the other guys what to do? There were times when he wrote parts out, but it, it wasn't all the time, especially not earlier on in the band. But it is interesting to me that um, when Rod wrote his song, he very often knew what the bass part should be. So he would explain it to Chris White and he very often knew what the drum part should be. There's a very distinctive drum part in She's Not There and also in Time of the Season. And he would always make a contribution, if not specify what the drums should be playing and what the bass, should be, particularly the bass. I was just going to say that because like Time of the Season has, you mentioned the drum part, has that really particular, really brilliant stop-start rhythm thing with the with the vocal rhythm interjection as well. I know there's a... Uh, Isn't <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Rob was talking about that the other day and the big the liberating force for us was at that time you could only record in this country on four tracks but the Beach Boys had just done Pet Sounds and they had an eight track machine mm. in America and John Lennon said to the engineers in Abbey Road well they've got an eight track machine we want an eight track machine the engineer said there isn't one in the country and he said well I don't know exactly what his words were but he sort of said this is your problem, not mine. Right. And he left them to it. And they managed to put two four-track machines together. I don't know the technical way that you do this. And in fact, that gives you seven tracks. And so suddenly, we were very used to recording on four tracks. So we would do the basic tracks. And we had three tracks left. So we could double-track harmonies. Mm -hmm. Or what Ar happened with Rod Argent, uh, he said, you know, we've done time in the season. He said, you know, I can hear a little hand clap and gasp thing on this. And it was one take. He just went out there and went, ding, 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 ah, ding, 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 right. ah, all the way through it. And of course, it's a real 
hallmark of that. Because it's a hook. It's a hook. In it Nowadays, yeah. you would sample yeah. one of those and just spin it all through, wouldn't you? And have it on re- yes. A, a, yes. A cut and paste. <laughs> but but the, with with uh, she's not there becoming such a big hit. I mean, suddenly this was. All at once, he was just—he was almost still at school, and the record is a bigger hit in America than the UK, I think, isn't it? It is. And you suddenly go off on some huge American tour. I mean, tell us a bit about that time and what your parents would have said. It was really strange. If I just tell you very quickly about recording, she's not there. Oh yeah. Kind of fashionable to record in the evenings, maybe even going into the nights. So we'd arrange to start. Well, our producer had arranged for us to start at seven o'clock in the evening, and. uh, we arrived at Decca Studios in West Hampstead, a really, really good engineer. He recorded some wonderful stuff, but unfortunately he'd been at a wedding all day and he was absolutely blind drunk. <laughs> worse than that, he was incredibly aggressive. And I can remember starting to sing, I've got the cans on, you know, and he's screaming down the cans at us, the worst language you can possibly think of. And taking into account, I've been in this business for about 60 years, I think, it makes me laugh because within 20 minutes of being in that studio, I knew the music business was not for me. I thought this is never going to work with mad people like this. But on the evening, we had a little bit of luck because he passed out cold on the floor. He just fell on the floor and passed out. <laughs> and we had to carry him out up two flights of stairs and we put him in a London black taxi. And I actually, I never saw him again after that. And his assistant engineer took over and that was Gus Dudgeon. Oh, wow. Gus Dudgeon, you know, recorded all yeah. the early Elton albums. Yeah. yeah. Kiki D, David Bowie, many, yeah. but that Big was producer. his first session with the zombies and he never forgot that and we never forgot it either. I mean, it was a miracle that She's Not There ever got recorded, to wow. be honest. And it came out and it was a hit pretty quickly in this country. It was helped because it was on Jukebox Jury and that week George Harrison was on the on the jury and um, it's an old TV programme, I don't know. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, With yeah, yeah. Pete and, uh, Murray at the helm. Pete, yeah. Yes. Or, or, um, was it? Was it? Have I got that wrong? I can't remember. But anyway, George Harrison really liked it. And I, I can't really do a Liverpool accent, but he, he said, well done, zombies. That's the best I can do. And that's it. If he says that, it's a hit. And it was. And um, it wasn't a hit till quite a bit later in the States. It came out more in the autumn in the States. And it went to number one in Cashbox and sort of number two or three in Billboard. It was Christmas, 64 65 that period and we arrived there for our first live work christmas 64 there was a very influential dj called murray the k murray the k who considered himself to be the fifth beatle oh yes i'm not quite sure what the beatles would say (laughs) about that but i think he claims that ringo or george named him the fifth beatle i thought brian epstein was the fifth beatle anyway but anyway he put these shows on and um so we opened at the Brooklyn Fox on Christmas Day with a with about 14 acts and you just did one or two songs and everybody played and then in theory the, the audience is supposed to leave because there's eight performances a day but mostly they just stayed there there were queues around the block it was very frenzied so it was a, the Shangri-Las the Shirelles Benny King Patti LaBelle Dionne Warwick Chuck Jackson and many, many others. And Well, you name check all this in your song, New York. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's line for line what happened, yeah. 
because you don't know exactly what's happening, but it's lovely, the specific... It reminds me of that Kate Bush song, Moments in Time. And it's a really lovely, evocative thing you do. But now you're you're giving us the, the actual diary entry that it is. Yeah, I mean, there were all these thousands of kids outside, obviously. But And, and I heard, hear a story that you went home on the subway. We did. We did. If I could just say, we had to follow Patti LaBelle, and then she had a singing group with her called the Bluebells. Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. And they bought the house down on every show, they were wonderful. And then <laughs> these teenage kids from St. Albans had to slouch on stage after Patti LaBelle and play. I think we were a tad apprehensive, to be honest, but in, you know, we got away with it, let's put it like that. But going back to the, uh, it was packed all around uh, um, the Brooklyn Fox and no one dared go out of the stage door. But on one occasion, our guitarist, Paul Atkinson, era of screaming people and it could get quite scary. And uh, Paul Atkinson went out of the stage door and he got caught by the crowd up against a plate glass window and they tore his shirt off him. <laughs> and the police came in and dragged him out. And they just said to him, look, we'll do this once, but we're not doing it again. So stay inside. So we would get there early and we would stay there all day with these crowds massing around. And then when the show ended, they all went home. We had no money. So he would just limp out of the stage door. There's no one there at this point. And we'd go home on the subway. And in those days, the Brooklyn subway was considered quite dangerous. And people, yeah, absolutely. People couldn't believe that we were going home on the, on the Brooklyn subway. It seemed such a strange contrast from being kept, you know, hidden away all day backstage because of this huge crowd outside. <laughs> Gary and I are used to the age of sort of the record company yes, always having people on hand to sort of take you to and from. And but there was something of the, I don't mean this badly, a bit of the unglamorous about the zombies that you just felt that, yes. you know, a couple of guys in glasses. And yet yes. you were part of this first British invasion. I know. We really suffered from that in the UK. And the trouble is that if I talk about it, which I'm obviously going to do, it reactivates that old image. It was also amateurish. We went to Decca's Records one day to go to their press department. And remember, we were pretty much just out of school. One of the guys was literally just out of school. And we had a sort of a 20 minute, half an hour meeting with them. And it went something like, well, what are we going to do about an image for you? It's, it's really blunt and full on like that. And we go, well, don't, don't know, really. And they said, well, what have you been doing? Somebody came up with the idea of saying, well, literally, we've just got out of school. I really wish they hadn't said that because the conversation then went on something like about, well, what did you do at school? You've got lots of exams. We didn't get lots of exams. We got one or two exams. And we were launched as a sort of um, an English geek boffin band or something. <laughs> and on top of that, of course, two of the guys had glasses. And Chris White still has glasses, but Paul Atkinson sadly no longer with us. But he got rid of his glasses after a while. And to be honest, when he got contact lenses, he was a bit of a babe magnet. He was a good looking boy. But those <laughs> early photos that, and, and that image just destroyed us. I mean, we were just like any other young band, you know, but we missed out on that in America because we went there six months after we'd made our first record. And they forgot about all that because we'd, we, we got a big hit record and we were treated in a different way in America. We were fortunate enough to get Marianne Faithful on the show but it was it was the strangest of all the shows re i remember recording in that 
it was on Zoom, but you were actually at Marianne's house, weren't you, Guy? And you were sitting next to her because I think she was, it was quite an extraordinary moment that was about to happen in her life. Yeah, I, I did, because she'd been very, very ill. Um, it was amazing that she agreed to do it. And it was, uh, and it was, so yeah, I kind of went and sat with her and did it. And it was just, it, it was very special, that one. But she was about to leave her house, wasn't she, as well? That's right, yeah. And she's now in... Um, I'd forgotten that, actually. And she's now in, in Denville Hall, right? Yeah, which is um, the, the very, very lovely actor's home, I must say. And I enjoy going up to see her there. Um, but I remember during this actual episode, I think she got very tired and it, it was it was cut short. But while she was on, it was a real thrill to talk to someone who's, you know, really had been there in the 60s when all those moments were happening in fact I, you know what a great story when we had um andrew Lou Goldham on and andrew talks about when he first goes to that party and he sees this incredible looking woman sitting on the radiator yeah and he approached her and he and he he heard a talking voice and he just thought we've got to write you a song it's, yeah because i mean andrew and marianne there's i mean you want to talk people who are in the room where it happened i mean come on you and anita were, were that was an amazing scene i mean i don't know i mean I, what a friendship. I mean, tell, how did you meet? I think we met in Rome. In those days, in the early days, Mick and Keith were really tight. And As in good he friends. wanted Mick to go to Rome. He did. You know. Oh, that's nice. What? That's nice. Yeah. So what year would that have been? Oh, so, God. 66? Oh, between 66. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she was going out with Brian at the time, or was she... Oh, okay. oh, when I first met her, yes, she was going out with Brian. But then I, I was with them, and so was Mick. We were in Tangier, where, and Brian used to beat her up. And, wow. uh, and Anita used to beat him up back, actually. <laughs> but I guess I wasn't in the room when it happened. Um, Christopher Gibbs and Mick and me, Christopher said, get out of here. This is not a good scene. And he was right, because the tension in the room with Brian, Keith, Anita, and poor Michael Cooper got so bad. And in the end, Keith is very romantic, of course. Keith just grabbed Anita and took her away. Wow. And they got into his Bentley and drove off, leaving Brian in, in bits and of course, then then Anita came between Mick and Keith because the, because of performance when she appeared in that. Yeah. But was it as an actor yourself? Did you ever? Were you a little bit? That should have been my part. Glad it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Because you were really a stage performer, weren't you? Well, yeah, yeah. All these things you're saying about my life and my work are really more applicable to Anita than to me. Oh, that's interesting. Really? Could you explain that a bit? Um, well, to her, what happened if it was real and wasn't on the stage was much more important. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it very hard to describe. But her life was very dramatic. It was, and very important to her. You know? And was that whole... Rolling Stone circle. Is it was it something that was felt like almost a distraction for you at times? Well, yes, of course it did. I couldn't really work at all, and it wasn't enough for me 
just to live life, I'm afraid. Were you, as was that partly, did, did, did Mick not want you to work? Or No, he was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't want the Keith didn't like her to work. Oh, that's interesting. Can you take this off for me? Yes. Because I'm getting hot. Let us know if you get tired, Marianne. No, I'm, I'm all, it's not me, really. It's my, my throat, my lungs. And has it been like that since you came out of, from it's COVID? COVID, yeah. Oh, have you been vaccinated now? I take oh, it. Oh yes, twice. Oh good. I mean, you know, I had a flow test this morning before I came here. Oh, God. <laughs> Guy, we can't we can't help be fascinated by those times, and in a way, oh, th- those yeah. those times, and I can see why I think you're drawn to the romantic poets, Marianne, oh. because because they had a similar. There was a similar. Well, they were a yeah. much earlier version. Of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, I always thought there was a thing about that whole 60s world where, with the whole rock and roll thing, was basically you had a load of working class kids <laughs> being able to behave the way those sort of upper class characters had all along, like back in the 18th century. It was to, to basically take drugs century. like Byron or, you know. That's 19th, 19th century. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. But did you, you grew up in a commune, though, didn't you? Is that I went to school in a convent. No, in a, no, in a commune. A commune. Oh, right. Which is my of, father. Yes, but that's before because communes are something we associate with that whole sixties. It's nothing. Kind of world, it wasn't yeah. a sixties commune. Yeah, it was a forties commune. What is it? What was it like? It was like um, one of the bad things that happened after COVID is my lungs, my memory, and tiredness. These are the three things <sighs> that really affect me, and it's an awful drug. I can't remember her name. It's a writer from the 40s, but it really was like a 40s commune. It was a school for integrative social research. That sounds... It doesn't sound like a 60s commune. <laughs> but were they trying, you know, I see what it was like for people to live together in one place as opposed yeah. to conventional life. But was it, was it all, it was all still, was it, it was family units? And stuff. No. It wasn't, oh, it wasn't? Oh, no. Oh. It was anybody. Was there a free love about it? No, none. I mean, there might have been. I was really little, you know, I was like six. Yeah. (laughs) But no, it's interesting, though, that you started off in what isn't a conventional way. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. And my mother didn't like it. Right. She was a ballet dancer, was she not? She was a dancer, both kinds. She was in the corps de ballet of Max Reinhardt. And then after the ballet finished, she went on with her partner, Hayda, and they played cabaret. <gasps> so she did two kinds of dances. Highbrow and lowbrow. Yes. <laughs> you certainly inherited that then, haven't you? I yeah. think so, yeah. 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 I was never snobby, you know. I don't buy all that. When you were talking about upper class, working yeah, class, yeah. I never bought into that. No, but that's what but that's what the sixties was I know. about. It was a thing and I think all that da- no, Anita understood all that. Yeah. But I didn't care. And it, it was a, because there was a, a reason why a lot of those guys in the in the art like Bailey and Kane and Jagger called themselves by their first names because it was a sort of it was like upper class people did, because before then working class people were just called Alf. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but but I mean listen, you're in this amazing scene with the Indica book sh- uh, indigo gallery and yeah how i mean that to us is that's just the that was really fascinating yeah yeah and watching yoko and john fall in love that was really fascinating 
But yeah, because your husband introduced them, or didn't he, at the time? He did introduce them, yeah. And in the fullness of time, do you think that was a wise move? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I really like Yoko. I like her a lot. She's been terribly kind to me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Do you stay in touch? A bit, yeah. I'm not really very social at all anymore. I think what we what we probably want to know, guys, well, is is you this what you know you were beginning you were an actor may, maybe you you know you're married to this important gallery person and yeah. then you meet Mick and you know I know my you, life turned upside down for four years it was only four years I'm glad I mean I don't regret it yeah but it was difficult it's <laughs> <laughs> one way of putting it yeah but that thing of just being at the absolute epicenter of you know, swinging London because you. Well, I, I, mean, I never singing, realized. What were that. you doing before? You was, you'd been singing in sort of folk clubs before you went to the the momentous party where you yeah. met Andrew. The House of the Rising Sun. Tell me, I don't know about the meeting of Andrew. It was a party. It was Adrian Poster's launching party, and um, I went with John and Peter Asher actually, and uh, and there at the party was Andrew Oldham, Mick, and Keith. And probably Brian, I don't remember. And apart from that, was it a good party? <laughs> it was all right, yeah. <laughs> what I was really interested in, because I was really hungry, was the food. <laughs> it was great food. Yeah, of course, you forget that. When you're a young, starving artist, yeah. uh, actually food features oh, quite heavily. So really good. That was a gig. It was great. There was tons of sandwiches backstage. Yeah. <laughs> they wrote their first song, did they? Didn't Andrew lock them in a room, Mick and Keith, and said, yeah, yeah. as tears go by? Well, that's the song they wrote when they were locked in the room, yeah. Was it meant to be for you from the start, or was it for, for them? You know, musicians always do that. You know, this one's for you, baby. When <laughs> 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 they want to see you. I've got a song. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, you told me, it was for me, and I've always believed that. Oh, okay. So I don't know. It's a strange in song. Case, in that case, you are responsible for the Jagger Richards songwriting partnership. No. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, that's the first song they wrote. You started this. Yeah. Song. Well, Andrew <laughs> needed a song. Yeah. For me, that's all. Well, then you did. Oh, oh well. my God. <laughs> Bother it. <laughs> So after this ad break, we've got Nick Mason, Jerry Shirley from Humble Pie and so much more. And the legendary producer, Shell Tell Me. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Next, we're going to go right back to the very beginning of Rock on Tours, episode one. And this is where our mad idea, which came up on the tour bus somewhere in Europe with um, the source full of secrets. Now, Gary, you think it was actually Lee's idea, don't you? I don't know. I, I don't know why you said that because well, my mind changes every five minutes, as you know. I'm skittish and uh... so skittish, like a, <laughs> like a cult, um, like a baby but, foal. But I do remember it as being your idea. Now, I don't know why you said Lee. I just I remember. Maybe you know, there's this is a compulsory thing we have that everything ever was Lee's idea. <laughs> No, I, I do remember saying, you know, this sort of idea of like you two get a podcast, you know, because yeah. because we well, just spoke about just get a room, rock history the which, whole which time. Which we have, we we, uh, we have, uh, and um, and I'm glad it was we were persuaded into doing it because I mean this has been such a trip, you know, such a great thing to do to talk to so many of what are essentially our heroes, yeah. over the years. There's some nice clips coming up. To, we've got Nick Mason. We've got Jerry Shirley from Humble Pie coming up soon. And, you know, Jerry Shirley was someone, you know, I mean, that, that Rock in the Fillmore album, totally formative and so important to me. You know, we have various touchstones, don't we? Things that keep coming up, which we then, mani- like the screen on the green, which we then manifest. But look, I would say that Rock in the Fillmore is an, one of the absolute touchstones of Rock on Tours because we come back to it so many times. Yeah, and Peter Frampton was on in an earlier episode as well, of course, and he spoke a lot about that. And then later on, we've got Shell Tell Me, some clips from Shell on, who's the, who, who produced those in, incredible early Who records. Yeah. So here is a clip from the very first Nick Mason interview that we did, and it, we were just newbies, weren't we? Do you know what, Gary, from listening to the clips from the last one, it was interesting listening to Phil Manzanero, how on those early ones, just how much we had to learn, because everyone's talking over each other a lot yeah of course we now do that all the time still yeah but no no it's no we, i mean it, it, we were newbies and i think i remember even having my crib sheet and my questionnaire all sort of written out in front of me terrified uh i thought anyway, you were just in your crib anyway let's go to our very first episode and this is nick mason talking about those early days with sid and the ufo club because the first thing we did was interstellar overdrive wasn't it was it? I think it was. Wow. I th- and and, I, I, and yes, what makes it right. is is once we'd done the kind of four, six, whatever, however many times around the riff, and then it goes into the sort of improvised bit. What did we do? <laughs> yeah, because the weird thing about it on the record is it's completely atonal. I think what we did is we listened to a lot of versions, didn't we? From yeah. We listened to a live version, yeah. various live versions from back in the 60s. And we were really fascinated by this atonal breakdown. I mean, it, how wild was that back in the 60s to do, yeah. to do that sort of the, stuff? Who were you copying? We, we did we, have well, the guide. Jazz, wasn't it? it was, uh, I, I, I don't know if it was you, but someone said one of my, it was a great comment about that was how, because it's the same format 
as a jazz song where you do like sort of 16 bars or something and then everyone solos and then you do 16 bars riff and then you're out but this is everyone soloing in a different I think it was you who said no I know but it was whereas the jazz musicians used to do that because it was a great way to express what fantastic musicians they were whereas with the early Pink Floyd it was just showing quite the opposite yeah exactly. <laughs> but where did you get into all that that kind of eternal stuff and how did I think that must have been Sid actually Sid who originally did the sort of breakdown of the concept. Because it, it, you're right, in a way, looking back to 1967, apart from a few really curious sort of singles, everyone was still working on this two-and-a-half, three-minute piece of length for any song in order to get radio plays. So this yeah. sudden change into something completely different, which, which probably came from... Uh, was probably directed by being in um, playing places like UFO and and those sort of underground where clubs or venues where yeah, people was a club expected on, sorry, something club different. on Court Road, wasn't it, back in the, the 1960s, yeah. run by Joe Boyd. And Hoppy, John Hopkins. So it was interesting for us to do that as a first number, wasn't it? Because it gave us the freedom in that middle section, the whole breakdown of, uh, of weird stuff, of exploring what we could do and not feeling tied to the original records, you know, and yeah. coming up with our own stuff with echo units and delays. And uh, and, and I, I think that was actually kind of set us free right from the, right yeah. from the get-go, wasn't it? The funny thing is, of course, now it's become much more... Stru- I mean, it's, I think we, we basically have a middle section that's based on sort of three bits of three different live yeah. versions. It's and then, and it, you, you have a bit of a structure because you have to. Yeah. But it's also now a springboard for musical gags about either someone who's in the audience or the town that we're in. Yeah. <laughs> I think so that, something to look out for, trivia fans, if you're at a gig. I think the most precious thing, really, was 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 doing Sid, really, and uh, and singing his songs. That was... There's, there's such a following out there for Sid and, you know myth and legend that's built around him mm. and uh, I almost can't believe you actually sat in the room with him you know it's almost like he didn't exist I mean the first time I ever heard a Sid song was I have to say it was David Bowie doing really? doing yeah. CMLE play yeah. you yeah. know that was my version you know and in a way Bowie was a kind of my way into singing Sid you know because 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 yeah. he was a he was so influenced by him just just tell us a bit about him what was he like and when you when well, uh, I, of of all the band, I think I probably knew Sid the least because uh, Roger, in particular, had known Sid in Cambridge and had more or less grown up with him. Was uh, you and the same with David. Hmm? Was he scary? No, absolutely not. He was absolutely delightful. The, the problem was that over a period of a year, he became less and less... Uh, in charge of himself, I suppose. I mean, there is still no clear understanding of what went wrong or what what happened. And I think there are two or three things that may be combined. Almost certainly there was an LSD problem uh, in which he had bad trips and instead of thinking this isn't working for me, he carried on trying for a a breakthrough. Well, David said that he he, he he was spiked a lot. Well, he might have been you know, there's, there's, because there was a whole uh, people wanted because there was disciples. A, there was a whole yeah, but there was a whole thing of madness. There, the whole R. D. Lang thing at the time, the whole ethos of mad, madness was very fashionable, and people kind of liked the idea of sending Sid a bit mad. And it's like you know, the, yeah. everyone, we're talking about kids. Everyone was yeah. kids, right? Yeah. And just not yeah. knowing what they were playing with. 
Well, that's that's highly possible. And there's now belief that there was a particular uh, version of LSD called STP, which m- was ten times stronger than a regular I've never dose. Heard, this is a this is a new one that uh, um, the info was sent to me by Jenny Spires, I think, oh. who was an ex-girlfriend of Sid's. Yeah, um, it was within, within the last two years. So that's a, a, another element to the story. But the other thing is, which was the Ronnie Lang thing. Uh, it, Roger went to see him to talk about Sid, and apparently he was um, a psychotherapist, right? Yeah, we well, went to see R.D. Lang. Yeah. Oh wow! And um, talked to him about Sid, and uh, apparently Ronnie Lang said to Roger, "Well, you know, maybe he's not the mad one. Maybe you are." Meaning that actually, uh, <laughs> That's so actually, 60s. Sid had maybe worked yeah. out that he really didn't want to be in a band and go on the road. He wanted to be a painter, which is what he'd originally Mm -hmm. come to London to do. And we, of course, thought that anyone who didn't want to be in a band was clearly insane. Well, yeah, I remember you saying that because, of course, the whole concept of being a rock star had literally only just been invented, right? Only, you know, the Beatles. It was like sort of only been around for three or four years so i mean you're absolutely right the idea that anyone would not want that is was inconceivable yeah no you yes how do you tell anyone actually no thanks would would you like to win the pools no thank you yeah but i suppose in a way did was it encouraged because his lyrics were so out there and the thought that maybe he he writes best on acid no, I well certainly i don't think from the band's point of view because i don't I've no, I mean, again, I, I wouldn't want to paint myself as the world's great expert on Sid. I've no idea yeah. which songs were or weren't mm-hmm. written. What I find about those songs, which is kind of odd, is that they're, they're sort of they're quite ramshackle at times. I mean, when we were doing, say, Vegetable Man Bike, for example, you know that some sometimes it's always a three four bar here, isn't it? Or it's a three and a half. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but it isn't. It's just he's. It's because he's not thinking about that. He's writing purely from the vocal, and so to him, as long as he has, you know, you have a, a line that's vaguely similar, that's similar enough to be in the same song, and that's the kind of that's the way he. George Harrison writes like that sometimes, where you're not really thinking about time. You know, he's not thinking about the band. It's you're just not thinking about the yeah. band. It's just. And there's a lot of old... And Stream of consciousness, really. Yeah, but it's also a way... There's a lot of... Uh, I remember David once showed me this brilliant thing of how with old blues singers, how if there isn't a band, there's your, your time constraints are completely different. It's only when you have to start thinking about the people that you really have to worry about being in time yeah. or being in certain But it's age. funny enough, because, because out of all of the Floyd stuff that we do, Sid stuff is the stuff we follow to the beat. To the absolute... Mm. Well, we have to, yeah, because we're both singing it. And, and it's the thing I've said before, what's incredibly impressive about Nick is the fact that we have to work our asses off just to be on top of this. You sail through it like it's yeah. the most straightforward, <laughs> kind of like it's take me home country road. Or well, something. it's in his DNA, isn't it? It, it, it's, it probably says early, you know, Sid Barrett, but if you cut you open in a way, is that, that sort of, that's part of how you started off as a musician, listening yeah. to him? I guess so. I mean, I, it's one of those curious things that you don't really think about you can and uh, there is this mixture when we're on stage you know between let's say Arnold Lane which is very specifically mm-hmm. as you say played you know played to the record and, and follows the, the 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 process completely yeah and we got another drummer next and one who worked and hung out a lot with Sid uh, he was born to drum his father was the drummer in a jazz band and he was in his own band the Valkyries, aged 11. This uh, this clip of Jerry Shirley that we're going to play talks about 
him knowing Sid Barrett when he was a younger man and going off to clubs with him, the speakeasy, and playing drums at the age of 14 with Steve Marriott. It was a really fun episode and um, he's actually got a great book out which is worth looking at for any of you bibliophiles called The Best Seat in the House which is which is a great title for any drummer I think. It is and it, I thought it was very very poignant that way he talked about Sid uh, saying he only knew him after the fire. Wow. Here he is, Jerry Shirley. I didn't know him before the fire if you like. You know I knew him after the fire and uh that's a very that's a sweet way of putting it. Well, it's no, it's it, it's it's a fact, and, and and so I would get mm. glimpses of the, the old Sid, um, except they would happen in strange ways. As an example, he would he was my going to the speakeasy buddy, except Sid's way of going to the speakeasy, all dressed to kill, you know, looking cool, looking because Sid still looked cool then. You know, the, um, in mm-hmm. 1971, um, except his eyes had gotten to that sort of dark, you know, the, 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 what's the line from the song, the dark holes holes in the whatever. But he still, you know, was dressed good, he, and, he, and he was Sid Barrett, you know, he had presents. So he'd turn up at me and Willie's flat on Redcliffe Gardens, ready to go to the speakeasy, except it was 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, Sid. Well, uh, come in. What, what time did it open? Uh, Eleven o'clock. <laughs> yeah. so I didn't start to speak. Didn't start getting going till eleven, and went until I don't know two, three o'clock, four sometimes. I think. But, so he'd lost track of time completely. At that well, point. yeah. I mean, yeah, but and and so we would say, we'd, "Okay, come on in," you know, and then we would do what. You know, 1970 hippies would do. We sit around all day, you know, rolling joints, smoking tea, listening to music, and he'd be perfectly normal. And he never had any money on him ever. Never, you know. So we'd drive him to the speakeasy, and I think because he either because he was with us or because I'd started to become known at that point a little bit. I'm not sure. We were let in for nothing, so we didn't have to worry about paying to get in. But once we were in there, we bought, bought him his drinks and everything. But the, the main thing was that he would be perfectly normal going there. But as soon as he went in, and bearing in mind it was his idea to go, he just shut off. As soon as he walked in, as soon as he was faced wow. with people, with the business, you know, with the place he wanted to go to, that was it. He was just shut down. He was just staring into the middle distance. And you couldn't get a word out of him until such time as it was time to go. And we'd drive him home and then eight o'clock the next morning. (laughs) 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 My best experience there that kept my feet firmly on the ground was with Ginger Baker years before when I was, I think I must have been about 15 at the time. I I was doing sessions for um, immediate records uh, well, for, for Steve Marriott, I'd had a lot of compliments while I was doing these sessions by Steve. He used to show me off to all these big shot friends of his. Right? I'd be doing a drum check. You're a few years younger than everyone. Yeah, oh, I, I, at this point, long, I, I'm, I'm talking about 66, yeah. 67. I was 14, 15. And, um, and, 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 I mean, what? and everybody that Steve's showing me off to... There's people like Mick Jagger and 
Charlie Watts and Jimi Hendrix were all in their 20s already, late 20s, some maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, they were all very, very sweet to me, you know, and I was very shy. I'd, he'd do the same thing every time. I'd be doing a drum check with Vin Johns or um, Eddie Kramer doing the sound. I'd have my head down, and, and of course, they were getting great drum sounds, it, but I was in Studio B. Anyway, so I'd have my head down and bang glass wallop, you know, and then they'd say, right, come listen, and I'd look up, and there'd be Steve Marriott, Mick Jagger, and Charlie Watts. One, that was a one time, and I just wanted the ground to swallow me up. I was so, yeah, I mean, 14, and there's your heroes, and I'm in the back. And I was, I'm not very tall now, but I was a lot shorter then. So anyway, I get off the drum kit and I walk towards him and Charlie came over to me, put his arm around me and he said, that's enough to make me want to cut my wrists off. And now wow. he, he didn't have to say something like that. And it's not true because he was just by far and away the greatest uh, groove drummer. I mean, Charlie's backbeat was just, and his snare drum sound was the best in the business. Always was, always will be. You know, may he rest in peace. And when Hendrix was the one, what he did was a similar thing. He's because they could see I was just shy and, and and nervous and stuff. And Hendrix said, "Well, man, he said that's really cool. That's really cool." So um, I go that's to the speaking. That's enough from Jimmy. And <laughs> the little band I was in at the time were playing, and we hadn't played very well. And I'm looking out at the bar, and there's Ginger Baker. So I thought, ah, okie dokie. Now, I get off the stage, and you had to walk past, to get to the dressing room, you had to walk past where he was to get there. So I'm walking along, trying to keep my head up, and as I get level with him, he's leaning very Ginger Baker-like against the bar. And as I walk past him, he looks at me and says... Just, you know, just went up my head's getting, you know, a little bit sort of, oh, I'm doing good here. And he looks straight at me and says, fucking shit. (laughs) (laughs) So I thank him, may he rest in peace, for keeping my feet firmly on the ground. (laughs) Wow, wow. You said, I wasn't that tall then, I'm a bit taller now. So you're not even grown up. Yeah, what, what now or then? <laughs> no, then. I mean, yeah, then you're still like a child growing up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I was still going. A massive small faces fan, weren't you, Jerry? Yeah. Did you have an incident where you 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 well, bumped into Steve Marriott early on? Yeah, that's how it all started. It all started by seeing them on Ready Steady Go, and I was couldn't believe watching Kenny. It was like watching me. You know, he had the same drum kit. I just managed to save up enough money for a deposit on a silver glitter super classic Ludwig kit, which was what he had, and I, I, I didn't know he had. I had never seen them before, mm. but, and, and his playing style was exactly like mine. And of course, because they were the sort of king mods, we suddenly became even more moddy than we were already becoming. And we became like most bands did at the time, which was a, a Small Faces copy band. Your name your name very much alluded to that, didn't it? Yeah, well, yeah at one point, yeah. When you mean when we were the little people. The, li- the little yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't get 
any more alluding to being a small faces copy band. <laughs> right, right, um, right, right. Anyway, we played a gig supporting them, and my dad was helping the guy promote the show, I think, and uh, he went into their dressing room and, and very politely, and my dad was just the greatest. He, you know, it was him that got me started. But anyway, he went in and introduced himself and just said, would you mind having a look at my son who's playing in the band for you because he's a huge fan of yours and it would mean a lot to me and it would be a lot to him. And so I don't know this is going on. And I'm on stage playing and we're doing all the Tamala Motown hits. We had to take our small faces jackets off. You know, we couldn't we couldn't support them and be looking like them sort of thing. I turn to the left and I look in the wings and there's Kenny Jones going like this. Thumbs oh. up. Oh. Well wow, now at this point I'm still I was barely I was just turned fourteen, I think. Then Minutes later, I look again, and there's him and Steve Marriott both going uh, like this. So after the show, they came up to me and said, ah, that was fantastic. You are really doing great. And jokingly, well, I didn't know, you know, I went away thinking it might one day happen, but jokingly said, if Kenny ever gets sick, you could be standing. And I went, oh, wow, you know. So I'm getting all this... Tapping on the back, and again, I thank Ginger Vapor for keeping me <laughs> on the ground. But that's how we first met him. Then we met Steve in a, in a, in a, on Shaftesbury Avenue. He was in Drum City looking at something, and we were just looking in the shop window and saw him in there, and just went in and re- reintroduced ourselves. I think it was our keyboard player said to him. Don't suppose you could record a single for us, could you? <laughs> you know, he was one of those guys, you know. Um, well, and I, I bet Steve looked immaculate. I'm trying to picture this as well. No, Steve, yeah, yeah, Steve yeah. at this point is the best dressed guy in the world. And he's just, in fact, I can remember literally what he was wearing that day. He had this fabulous, it was a typical kind of mod style jacket. And then he had a waistcoat. It was made of the same material, but it was double-breasted, kind of like a a, a Western cowboy um, type of um, wow. waistcoat, with a white shirt, black mohair strides, beautifully cut, and a pair of white pumps. Uh, you know, um, oh, and he Whoa. he just not only did he look a million dollars, you know, his hair was just cool. And he smelled like a million dollars. You know, cause wow. it, they, they all were really into being immaculate in in the way that they dressed. And and yeah. and um, it, until the really until the sixty seven ish when they turned into hippies. That's when all that kind of went in. They still dressed well, yeah. but it wasn't quite as immaculate, shall we say. So next we have Shel Talmy, who was one of the most incredible producers of the 60s in London. I mean, he sort of pretty much invented the rock sound, didn't he? Well, he did. I mean, well, he did that riff. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Kinks' early singles, you know, with that first distorted guitar, you really got me. With the amp being slashed and... yeah. And of course, he worked with the Who, and he and he produced uh, their first album, My Generation. Yep, and of course, the legendary Can't Explain, and... Other things. He worked with Jimmy Page as a session player as well. I mean, it's a, it was a, 
Jimmy was his was what he kept in his back pocket, wasn't he? He basically used to bring Jimmy along to pretty much every session he did. Yeah. So let's get him on. Shell, tell me. Shell, absolute privilege to have you on. You created, really, for us guys, the sound of British pop music. Well, thank you for that. I'm not sure that's totally accurate, but I certainly did my best coming from um, L.A. where, you know, I think, you know, I started out as a recording engineer and I spent a lot of time at the studio figuring out how to mic various instruments, how to isolate them and all that kind of stuff. So that's what I actually brought with me to London when I went and um it looks like it paid off, which is nice. Well, you were the first person to use tons of microphones on the drums. Yes. Yeah, I always wanted control of, of every piece of drum equipment. And at, at that point in time, both there and here, uh, everybody was using like three or four mics. And I thought that's really not good enough. So I worked out how to use 12 without them phasing, which is what the first thing I was told when I brought it to uh, London was that uh, you can't do that because all the mics will phase. I said, well, I guess you just have to listen. So, you know, a month later, everybody was trying to use 12 mics. So. <laughs> but it's true what Guy says. I mean, the, your drum sound, mm-hmm. you know, on people like Keith Moon was incredible. I mean, you look at a track by The Creation, like, uh, how, how does it feel? Yeah. I mean, that drum kit. I mean, Jimmy Page could only have <laughs> dreamt of that later on. No drums had ever sounded like this before. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that because uh, I was always very intense on getting the best possible sounds I could get. And if, it, if I succeeded, then I'm extremely pleased. These were tiny desks back then, right? We're talking about sort of three, if you were lucky, four-track machines. Comparatively speaking, yeah, sure. I don't want to get too technical for our listeners, but just having enough, the channels to put all mm. those mics in <laughs> must have been a challenge. The studio I, I was in had a method of chaining another right. bunch of um, of inputs so that, you know, we're able to get all that together. Right. What was the beginning for you, Shell, getting into being an engineer? What 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 encouraged you to do that? Were you a musician? Because I know you've written some songs. No, I, I'm, I'm not. I play guitar, but I'm a good enough producer not to ever want to record myself as a guitarist. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I guess it goes, really, it goes back to when I was 13, and I think it's fair to say a smart-ass kid in school, and... A teacher sent in... Sorry, if I can stop you there. You were appearing on a quiz show when you were a yeah. kid, right? Yes, it, it was called The Quiz Kids, right. And um, and I loved the, the whole idea of it, but even then I wanted to be behind the camera instead of in front of it. But that, that was the turning point for me in terms of... Um, selecting showbiz as a career. Because just to follow up on that, you've got one of this incredible high IQ, haven't you, Shell? You're you're part of a group of people above the 99.9 percentile of the rest of the human race. They're called the Triple Nine Society. And uh, yeah, it is a high IQ organization. And uh, I find it extremely interesting to be part of it. And uh, the members are all separated truly around the world. So... Very seldom do we ever get together and meet each other. It's all usually by either email or, I guess, Zoom now, although I haven't done that yet. Are you sort of like the Avengers? And Do you sort of look down on the rest of we poor humans? I have never looked down on anybody who did not deserve to have to be looked down upon. So there's a story about you coming to 
England with a load of records of acetates that you didn't actually yeah. produce and being told, is that true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, it was only two acetates. My friend Nick Vinay was a uh, A&R at Capitol Records, and uh, I told him I was going for five weeks, which was my intention, to London so I could see some of that and some of uh, Paris before life passed me by. And I said, be nice if I could work for a couple of weeks because I didn't have a whole lot of money. And he said, here, take my acetates and tell them you, you did them. One of those was the Beach Boys, right? I mean, yeah, that's a Beach big Boys, yeah. Record. Yes, uh, Serpent Safari by the Beach Boys and um, uh, Lou Rawls, the name of which now escapes me. But anyway, two great records. And uh, when I met with Dick Rowe at the DECA, after hearing him, he said, you start today. So <laughs> We have to talk about the Kinks, because this is your first sort of yeah. major record. But And there's so much myth and legend that surrounds that first single, You Really Got Me, and especially in the guitar sound. But was this a band that was presented to you, or did you go and see them live? And what were they like? No, I was actually in Denmark Street, visiting some publisher friends of mine. We we're going to have lunch. and Tim Pan Alley, as it was known. Yes, Tim Pan Alley, right. Yeah. And Robert Weiss, one of the managers, walked in with an acetate of the kinks. And uh, I was in the lobby, and he said, anybody here would like to listen to this? And I said, well, I'm here. I'll listen. So I did. <laughs> and uh, liked a lot about what I heard. And eventually, I, I took them into Pi and got them signed. I understand You Really Got Me was a very different version because Ray wrote it on the piano, didn't he? He wrote most everything on the piano, yeah. At least originally. I I think he did switch off from time to time, but he wrote stuff at home, so I, you know, I wasn't privy to how he went about it, but mainly piano, I think, is what he used. But what's interesting is that for someone who's known for this incredible catalogue of fabulously whimsical sort of pastoral songwriting that he basically invented heavy rock as we know it with this sort of little batch of songs. I don't think he started out thinking that way or did I. The fact that yeah. it turned out that way was, I think, a surprise for all of us. And the fact that it's continued to last is also a very nice surprise. So do you think much of that could have been to do with you, Shell, knowingly or unknowingly? Uh, well, I, I got a figure that I had... A damn good part of it. I mean, yes, I was the producer. I was a hands-on producer. I had worked out how to do drums and, and lots of other sounds, including guitars. And uh, so I guess, yeah, I'm as responsible as Reyes for writing a great song. But, but I guess that's guitar sound, which is seminal now. That You know, the Dave Davis guitar sound, right. which, you know, the fifths. You know, you can follow the seam that goes on from there through punk and through all kinds right. of heavy rock and Oasis, 90s, whatever. Well, the torn speakers, wasn't it? There was, that was the the thing. sound, we are told, yeah. through myth, it was where the uh, the speakers were slashed. Yeah. Were you in the room when those speakers got slashed? And tell me the truth. <laughs> what is the real well, story? It, it was, um, I think it was called an El Pico amp. And uh, not only were the, were the uh, was it slashed, but... Uh, David definitely suggested that as we walk by, we could give it a kick or two. So uh, <laughs> it, uh, it developed its own sound. And I did chain it to an AC30. Ah. And, uh, you like your chaining, uh, don't you? And, 
Yes. Well, if it, it, it works, yeah. It, you know, was, was that the first distorted guitar sound on record? Is Can we just have that as a definitive yes or no? Or? You know, I, a lot of people say it is. I, I, I can't comment one way or the other. I don't know. It's certainly among the first, let's put it that way. And, of course, there's the question of the other musicians who were there. The other musicians who also were terrific, yes. Yeah. We know he didn't do the solo. We know he didn't do the solo. We know that. We're not going to ask Jimmy that Page question. we're talking about. Page right. finally admitted that he didn't do the solo. Uh, why he even said he never did, I've never understood. In fact, he wasn't even on that session. So I employed him for the, the album because Ray wanted to concentrate on singing and not playing rhythm guitar. So I employed him as a, a rhythm guitarist for the album. Okay, we're just going, to, just going to hold there for a second because I think, you know, you, you, you are the touchstone here. You know, you've got Ray Davis and Jimmy Page in the room. No one knows who Jimmy Page is really outside of the studio world. What was Jimmy like as the session player? Oh, Jimmy was great. No, I, I found him when he was about 17 and um, he didn't read music then. So, I mean, my, my early memories of him when I booked him on sessions was in between takes he was practicing how to read music so <laughs> no he, he's an extraordinary guitarist no question do you know what? i had a funny thing i worked with jimmy many times over the years but i did a project with him with david coverdale and when we were rehearsing yeah. for the shows we had did all these zeppelin songs and all their songs and then there was yeah. going to be a load of white snake stuff and i remember thinking how the hell is jimmy going to learn all this stuff and of course he had it in a second because of course he's the session dog and it was you know it's like and it's never leaves you <laughs> yeah he was he was very quick uh, just while we're on jimmy and i know we'll come back to jimmy later when we yeah. do talk about the who everyone thinks that jimmy was the first guy to pick up a bow and to bow the guitar but actually it was it was he yeah. didn't do that it was eddie, he didn't do that either. It was eddie phillips no, right um, that's eddie phillips absolutely from the creation yeah, uh, and jimmy no, I won't use the word stole. Let's say borrowed. <laughs> and he started using it. All artists steal, don't they? Was, don't they say average artists borrow, great artists steal? Yes, of course, of course. But was Jimmy <laughs> in the room when Eddie Phillips from The Creation was bowing away one day? and when? No, he wasn't on those sessions at all. All right. They're great records, by the way, The Creation. I know that, that comes up a little bit later. But, I mean, Making Time and Painter Man, I mean, they're just... I mean, as Guy was saying to me earlier, you know, this is the 90s. Oasis wouldn't have existed, would they, Guy? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But in fact, you know, Alan McGee named his label after them. uh, They were one of my very favourite bands. And my major regret is that right after I made a deal with Ahmed Erdogan at Atlantic to sign them for Atlantic to make them the superstars they deserve to be. They broke up and I could not keep them together. Wow. Well, thank you for listening. And next week, we're going to be coming on to certainly Gary's home turf. Yeah, some 80s icons. And how are you enjoying our little holiday, Guy? I'm absolutely loving it, Gary. I particularly enjoyed uh, What the Butler Saw this afternoon on the pier. Yes. But aren't you still a bit dizzy from the waltzer? Yes, but Mrs. Branston's tea room certainly calmed me down. Yeah, that lemon drizzle cake hits the spot every time, doesn't it? It did. And I guess this evening we'll we'll go for a little stroll along the pier, maybe. Promenade on the greensward. <laughs> Thank you for listening. As we said, we, we are we are trying to f- give you episodes, deliver these best ofs and some of our ourselves while we are on this holiday and um, preparing ourselves for our Australian trip. And as we say, next week it will be... 80s heroes? What are we calling it? 80s, 80s icons. 80s icons, icons. Gal. icons. 80s icons. I wonder if my brother's going to be in it. Certainly. 
We'll see you there. Thank you for listening, and it's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,